This is MSCI Perspectives, your source for insights for global investors and access to research and expertise from across the investment industry. I'm your host, Adam Bass, and today is March 23rd, 2023. The last couple of weeks have been, oh, I don't know, rocky, unsettling, nail-biting, or maybe best just to stick with the good old-fashioned volatile. As I'm sure everyone listening knows all too well, it all started with a run on Silicon Valley Bank, which primarily served the tech industry. Since then, names like Signature, Credit Suisse, and First Republic have all flashed across our news feeds. And in the midst of all this, the ECB and the Fed held their regular meetings. Thankfully, we have access to MSCI's deep bench of experts to help put this all into context. We sat down earlier this week with three of them. Andy Sparks, who heads portfolio management research at MSCI. Jim Costello, chief economist for Real Assets at MSCI. And Florian Sommer, who heads MSCI's corporate governance research in Europe. One note before we dive in. Since recording our conversation on Tuesday, the Fed announced a 25 basis point or quarter percentage point hike to the federal funds rate. Addressing the elephant in the room, they noted, quote, the U.S. banking system is sound and resilient. However, they seem to soften their stance on the inevitability of, and again I'm quoting, ongoing increases. All right, let's get to it. I'll see you on the other side. So Andy, Jim, Florian, welcome to the program. Uh, Really great to have all three of you here and have the chance for you three to speak with each other on this important issue. So let's dive in. I mean, our our goal here, if I may, would be to help investors not only understand what happened, but also the questions they should ask as they make decisions around their portfolios going forward. Speaking of those questions, my guess is that the question on everybody's mind that I'd love to kick off with is, is this 2008 all over again? Andy, start with you. This is, a, um, of course, the concern that many investors are now grappling with. And in this case, we had a trigger event, right? in other words, a run on deposits that uh, apparently exposed more fundamental problems with with certain financial institutions. Roll back to 2008, Lehman Brothers failed that generated the global financial crisis. But let's also remember that Bear Stearns failed about six months earlier. And at the time, it looked like the regulators acted prudently in arranging the wind down of Bear. And over the next couple of months, markets seemed to calm credit spreads tightened. In retrospect, I think everyone would agree that regulators and investors failed to anticipate that Bear's problems were not isolated, but in fact were present in other large financial institutions. So I think one of the big fears in the current environment is that the problems may not go away, but they may reappear in even much more forceful form months from now, the problems that 
SVB and Signature and Credit Suisse and other institutions that have been have been in the news lately that these problems are not isolated but could spread, although not necessarily immediately. What do you think, Jim? That uh, that that question, Adam. You know, is this 2008 all over again? That's kind of normal human behavior to think about a crisis and how it relates to the last bad event. We're always fighting the last war. But what I like about, about the way Andy outlined uh, these issues, you got the scenario of, you know, is it like Bear Stearns? They clean it up and then nothing else happens? Or is it just the highlight to something bigger? I like that kind of scenario analysis. Think about not just every downturn is the same. Think about what's driving it and how it's different and how it's the same and uh, pull apart the pieces. And, and, you know, one thing that's different than before, than 2008, we don't have lots of toxic loans that uh, people were originating. That's not the fundamental issue here. It was about the revaluation of assets that these institutions were holding on their books and you know, how they uh, manage their risk around that. So in, in that respect, if you go through the different scenarios and think about it from that perspective, maybe it's a different outcome. You have to just think beyond, oh, it's a downturn. It's like last one, different characteristics going in. So you have to expect some different results moving forward. Florian? So what I would say is that I think in these kinds of cases, going back to 2008 and also now with these sort of recent failures and bank rescues, I think it's normal and it's important for people to ask about corporate governance. And that's because corporate governance is effectively the system used to make company decisions, so to decide strategy and to monitor its implementation. So if a bank fails or needs to be rescued, people naturally want to know about the decisions that have been made at the company to get to that point. Sticking with the 2008 theme for a moment. Another similarity outside of the banks here is the tie-in with real estate, right? Which, of course, was a huge, was the driver in 2008. Yeah, the driver in 2008 was the single-family residential sector. You had uh, a mass of construction. We needed about 1 million housing units per year to be built. We were building about 2 million per year, and people were getting loans uh, where the bank was behind 95% plus of the purchase. Think of Silicon Valley Bank. One of the issues was about a third of their interest income came from their holding mortgage-backed securities. They didn't originate those, which just, you know, they had deposits and everything else. They had to invest in something to give them some yield. Those mortgage-backed securities, the value has been falling as interest rates increased. It was a, you know, so-called safe asset. It was a steady credit type of thing, but the revaluation of the assets on their balance sheet, that's where the problem is. So real estate's impacting it, but in a different way. Help me understand, maybe this is a little naive, but typically don't higher interest rates, isn't that usually good news for banks? Banks make a living by uh, the different differences of spread. You know, they borrow short term with very low rates and lend long term. So anytime you have uh, yeah, a difference in that because of interest rates rising, they can make more money. The problem is that they have existing assets that are tied to a low interest rate environment. And this transition is a painful experience for everybody. And part of the issue is just the uh, changes in what it is to be a bank. The last time 
the Fed raised the Fed funds rate this sharply was back in the early 1970s. Financial institutions were different animals then. You originated loans, you held loans. There wasn't something like uh, the mortgage-backed securities market that banks could hold on their balance sheet. They could hold cash, they could hold you know, uh, government bonds, but they didn't have as many innovative financial products that they themselves could work with. So this is uh, a bit of a, you know, what economists call an out-of-sample analysis. You know, there are things that are happening that are outside of the historical interactions in the data. And Adam, coming back to 2008 and what may be different now versus then, and what were also lessons learned, um, I completely agree with Jim that a lot of the uh, problem back then was um, asset deterioration um, concentrated in real estate. It was one of the driving problems. Um, I'd also say leverage was very, very large in the system. This was the time of synthetic CDOs, all sorts of explicit as well as implicit leverage was in the system. And as a, in the aftermath of all of that, of course, there was a huge amount of new banking regulation that uh, was implemented, including the Dodd-Frank rule. And this has been the first, uh, this I don't even want to call the current situation a crisis. It's nothing like the global financial crisis yet. But this has been a test about whether the new regulations that were implemented in, in the aftermath of um, 2008, how effective they've been. And I'd say the early returns are, are not very effective. And it does come back uh, somewhat to the issue of governance. In modern day banking, Banks are not supposed to be taking a lot of interest rate risk. And reading various media reports, it, it does seem that in some of these institutions, there was a, an interest rate mismatch between the short duration deposits institutions were funding themselves with versus the, um, the assets they were investing in. And so that is, uh, I think, it raises a very important question about how effective has regulation been in reality these problems did exist seemingly seemingly without um, having too much scrutiny. I think it is disconcerting to a lot of investors, and um, it sort of comes back to the, the potential opaqueness of, uh, of bank balance sheets. It does look like from articles now in, in a number of publications, including the journal, that the Fed actually did, in the case of um, Silicon Valley Bank, right as early as I think 2021 come to them with some issues that they saw. So, Florian, I'll turn to you um, again. Does this come down to governance? Thanks for that question. To reiterate what I said before, I think it's it's very important to think about uh, governance in this context because of the importance to company strategy and um, companies' decisions generally. Board oversight of risk management is a key concept, I think, for investors to look at. And so what I can highlight here a little bit is how we at MSCI ESG Research think about board oversight of, of risk management. And the way we actually look at it is by thinking about what the skills of directors are on the board. So the key question here that we pose is whether companies have at least one non-executive director with risk management expertise. And if that's not the case, we highlight it as a potential risk under our methodology. The question now, of course, is what counts as risk management expertise? 
There's different definitions out there and we have our own, which is actually quite focused. And so what counts for us is previous risk management experience as an executive, for example, as a risk officer um, or, or, or other executive functions. So what I did was I looked a little bit at this question for a universe of companies. So for companies in the MSCI World Index, so large and mid-cap companies in developed markets. And it turns out that applying our criteria, we actually find that over 70% of, of all companies across industries do not have any non-executive director with this sort of expertise. And for banks in particular, um, I can also share some numbers. So we have in, the, in this universe, we have 74 uh, banks. Based on our analysis, about one third of banks in the MSCI World Index do not have any non-executive director with this sort of expertise, which I think is quite a, quite a stark number. So um, if you're thinking about the centrality of risk management, to the business of banking, and then the role of the board in overseeing these processes. I think that's a key question to ask for investors. And, and certainly, risk management. I mean, that's what uh, that's what banks are about, right? Looking across the world, as you did, did you see any regional differences in terms of these numbers? Yeah, that's that's another great question. So I think um, one comparison I can share is between. Uh, banks in the U.S. and non-U.S. based banks. And so if you look at that, um, we have 24% of U.S. banks flagged for lack of director risk management expertise. And that compares with 35% for non-U.S. banks. You have a higher share of risk experts on the boards of U.S. banks in, in this sample. Andy and Jim, you, you both raised this. The idea of of data of transparency about the fact that so much of what we're looking at here is is opaque is that part of the problem and if it is what what can we do about it you know there's going to be plenty of finger pointing and um of course it's already started first and foremost banking regulators are supposed to have various tripwires that anticipate potential problems that result in a satisfactory resolution well before the situation escalates. So that didn't, didn't really happen here. You know, the failure of bank regulation to prevent the current situation is going to be one of the key issues going forward. But um, fundamentally, the, the case of SVB, it was a, a pretty large institution. It was regulated by, among other um, regulators, the Federal Reserve. And it does seem like there was a basic failure to um, anticipate these problems, even though seemingly the Federal Reserve, for example, um, seemed to have some some advanced knowledge of looming problems. And, you know, on this issue of opaqueness in the U.S., the regulators do have an ability to get some information about each of the institutions that they're regulating in the banking side. Uh, and I deal a lot with the commercial real estate world. There's a whole universe of lenders outside of the commercial real estate side. There's a whole securitized world that's very transparent because it comes under a lot of SEC type regulations. Stuff outside of that, private loans, debt funds doing stuff like that, very uh, uh, opaque because it's it's just individuals without any kind of regulatory oversight uh, except uh, some ERISA stuff when they're raising capital that uh, oversees them. But that's in the United States. Other parts of the world, 
you know, there are different regulatory frameworks and not as much information available. Uh, it's it's a sector that's still very much something that uh, sort of a, a clubby network of people talking to each other at conferences to get a sense of market pricing uh, because you just don't have daily rates published in many cases. I don't want to let investors completely off the hook here either. Skeptics of bank regu- regulation could also argue that Excessive bank regulation and even intervention has created this moral hazard that has reduced the discipline of the market. And so under this line of reasoning, investors have maybe placed too much faith in the regulators and not enough in their due diligence. So I think it's also important to underscore that obviously a a lot of investors are taking big hits. And it's easy to say after the fact, hey, they should have paid more attention to this and that. But ultimately, this sort of what is what used to be known as the Greenspan put and then became the Bernanke put and the Yellen put, and maybe now it's the Powell put, uh, this idea that the banking regulators, because they have um, periodically helped bail out failing institutions and maybe lessened the pain to, um, to investors, has maybe encouraged excessive um, exposure of to the banking system from investors because of this view that central banks will intervene. But given given the opaqueness that we were talking about, I hear what you're saying about investors, but how are they supposed to make decisions if they don't have the data? Well, there's always data. And the question is how much effort do you want to invest in 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 doing more and more analysis. And so look, the banking sector is very well covered by equity analysts, by fixed income analysts. So there's a a tremendous amount of focus on it. I mean, I think I can bring it back to the the question of risk management. So the role of the board in overseeing a company's risk management is obviously a role that has different facets to it. And part of that is making sure that the right policies and procedures are in place. But that also includes having the right type of information come up to the board. So as we're having this conversation, the we're on day one of the Federal Reserve meetings here in the US. Obviously, this will have an impact. Andy, I'll start with you as our resident historian and and scholar on on the fed what give us some insight what do you think those conversations are like well you know needless to say uh fixed income markets have reacted very strongly to the recent turn of events yield curves have dramatically steepened in anticipation of much less aggressive rate hikes going forward Markets in interest rate futures show an expectation that the Fed will be lowering rates by by midsummer. Credit spreads have widened significantly, and uh, market implied inflation expectations have noticeably declined just over the past few weeks as the current banking situation plays out. So, this is all consistent with the view that the current banking situation is going to curb lending activity and effectively to help the Fed cool the economy and lower inflation. So I think a, a lot of the focus at, uh, at the meeting is going to be how much more do we really need to raise you know, after this extended period of very aggressive rate hikes? Um, 
is is this banking crisis effectively going to be helping us out and um, sort of lessening the load that we have to drive rates higher to cool the economy that may be less necessary given um, given potential tightening for um, in lending activity and a, a cooling of the economy. From the perspective of commercial real estate, this this raising of rates and the cooling off, it was cooling off both on the supply and the demand side. The number of unique lenders each month uh, had been falling uh, through the fourth quarter of 2022, uh, well before any of, it's not a crisis, maybe it's a kerfuffle, we'll call it that, uh, has started because uh, the, the, the opportunity set that they saw was uh, falling for both the lenders and the potential borrowers. Uh, liquidity was driving up that way, uh, was drying up that way. The uh, originators were tightening the standards at which they would originate. So all that was a backdrop before we even hit this kerfuffle. And, and so this, this situation uh, is, is just exacerbating it. The challenge I think they have, you know, that they go too hot or too cold now. That, you know, you don't want to have uh, a, you know, all the legs of the stool for financing dry up because then you do end up in the 2008 type of framework where even uh, high quality borrowers can't get, get money at any price. Uh, and they're not going to make everybody happy. You know, th- there's it's it's a no-win situation for them in in that sense. And you know, we know that uh, uh, the Kobayashi Maru scenario, the only way to win is just know that you're going to lose, and you're not going to uh, get everything you want, but just stick to your principles, and you know, stick to your principles and and focus on that, and that's the the best way to get through it. How have investors been reacting to the response that we've seen from from the Fed in terms of backing deposits, the Credit Suisse situation with the the government backed or engineered? We can choose our word uh, with UBS coming in to purchase and big impact on 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 debt there as well as some some other governance issues we can talk about. But how has the market been reacting to all of this? action by governments and central banks say so far it's been calming um when the initial news went out about svb uh and signature and other regional banks and credit suisse there is of course a a sharp sell-off in the equity market sharp rally sort of a flight to quality rally into um, government bonds um, credit spreads some um, widening at the same time so very vicious reaction but since these um, since these interventions um, there has been a calming influence and I think the real question for investors is that is this, is this going to be temporary um, or are we a going to revert back to this sort of the situation before these recent events, um, or could could it further escalate potentially uh, in, in in a few months into something worse as as Lehman did um, did evolve after or and did occur after the um, Bear Stearns um, takeover. You know, thinking about this issue from the perspective of of you know the investors in the banks is one way. Thinking about it as the from the perspective of the users of the banks, the borrowers who would go to them looking for capital. Uh, I've been I've been up to my ears in that in the last uh, week thinking about the real estate investors and how they were using debt from institutions. The smaller lenders are dead center for 
some of the challenges and concerns at the moment. And that's an issue because those regional local banks had been growing as a share of all lending to commercial real estate over uh, the last 10 years. And they were the majority lender as of the end of 2022. We're gonna be like 27% of the market for all commercial real estate financing. So there's a number of folks in that commercial real estate investment world concerned about what types of investment opportunities they will face moving forward uh, in that they need a lot of debt to make these investments work. Uh, traditionally, they have. And do they face some future liquidity constraints that will impact pricing? So it's, it's, a, it's a circular issue of you know, people worried about the value of the assets on the book uh, for, for the lenders. But then the borrowers uh, are issuing things that they themselves hold. Yeah, so there's you know, the potential for a downward spiral there that people are worried about. You know, Adam, I'd also like to say it's um, the reality is, is that um, over the past uh, number of years, uh, we generally have had an, a really, really low interest rate environment for quite a while. And um, we had relatively low inflation. This is up until a couple of years ago, of course. Um, and we may be in a different regime going forward. Maybe in terms of real estate, maybe it's not as big a concern now as 2008, but think other things like crypto and what is the exposure to crypto? And maybe it's less than investors think, maybe it's more, who knows? But um, there are some new new elements um, that investors should be thinking about, and um, you know it sort of comes back to opaqueness of balance sheets and um, trying to better, from an investor's perspective, trying to better understand what what risks do lurk out there, particularly among financial institutions. History suggests that you have generally these trigger events at banks it could be a, a run on deposits but the combination of, of interest rate risk credit risk liquidity risk um, and leverage th those are it's usually some combination of those that creates a crisis great points as you've all made about this is bigger than banks this is bigger than fixed income it's bigger than real estate it's looking at your total portfolio so with that in mind, and anyone, you know, please jump in first. For an investor, what are they looking for? What should they be on the lookout for in terms of having the information they need to make decisions about those portfolios under the different scenarios that, Andy, you were talking about? Well, I'll start. Um, I think... The first thing is to understand how how their portfolios and how individual securities in, in those portfolios might behave in different scenarios. And so we may not know the probability of one scenario versus the other, but most investors will have some sense that there are maybe three or four different scenarios that are, are likely to happen, but could have very different outcomes, but they may not have a way of quantifying what would be the the impact on the portfolio if this were to occur. And so I think, you know, finding tools that will help them um, help them with that, I think is important. So a identifying the scenarios and we oftentimes find working um, at MSCI with institutions who are looking at uh, at 
looking at portfolios under different scenarios that um, it's very healthy within the institution to have um, a, sometimes a vigorous debate about plausible scenarios. It oftentimes brings different parts of an institution sort of on the same page. And so once you've identified those scenarios, then the next thing you need to do is to, um, to make some basic assumptions and then to use some risk management tools to better understand how in each of those scenarios the portfolios will behave. You know, it's funny when when I think about this, uh, the you have this talk about portfolios and risk, and it's sort of a, a very institutional way that people talk about it, and you know, very reserved. There's some clients I deal with who are not reserved at all. They're uh, they're cowboys. And they are excited. They're excited by this because they smell blood in the water. They think this is interesting. Uh, and there's folks looking at this as an opportunity. There have been periods in the past where we've run into a crisis situation. And the people who come in and clean up whatever messes are around afterwards uh, tend to do well. You know, they get compensated for the risk that they take uh, to clean it all up, but they are excited for some of those opportunities. The types of things that they're trying to figure out are who is who is too far ahead of their skis, whether it's trying to dig into the details of each lender and figure out you know, the, the relative balance sheet or trying to figure out which borrowers were coming in at uh, you know, prices that were too high and uh, in an unsustainable framework and maybe who has a loan coming due in the next two years. And so folks are trying to and will pick apart all our information to get at that. Very well said, Jim. And uh, that reminds me of, uh, again, but, but by the way, full disclosure, I did work at Lehman Brothers for many years, and I was there during the bankruptcy. So uh, some of this still is pretty fresh in my mind, but um, I... Sorry for, uh, for triggering. Did you keep any Lehman swag, though? <laughs> oh, of course. Yes, I do. I do have my souvenirs still, and I, I do wear them ever so often. Um, but uh, I do know, and I do have a background in securitized products, and I know plenty of traders and structures who helped structure um, uh, subprime CMOs, a lot of other structured products, and um, a lot of those products performed very, very poorly at the depth of the crisis. Um, but quite a few of those traders went on to, uh, after, after the institution failed, in this case, Lehman, um, they went on to other, other jobs, maybe at hedge funds. And a lot of them bought those securities that they'd structured at very low prices and made quite a bit of money. So you are, I think what you said, Jim, is, is very well taken that, uh, you know, uh, distress uh, does create opportunities too. And of course, there, there are many uh, aggressive investors out there who are, are bottom fishing now. I, I also really like that framing, uh, sort of never let a good crisis go to waste. So I think from a portfolio perspective, one thing to, to maybe potentially think about is trying to see how companies are now positioned in terms of their governance to deal with some of the risks that we're seeing with some of the increased market volatility. And, you know, we talked about risk management expertise on the board. That's a key issue. But there's other things that we, we can think about as well in this context. And, and I'm just going to uh, mention one that is relevant for banks, but also for non-banks, I think, especially in this environment. And that's overboarding. 
director of reporting. It's, it's not necessarily a pretty term, but essentially what it means is that um, if you have an overboarded director, that's a director who sits on too many boards. So the potential risk there is that in an environment where you might want to have directors spending more time making decisions, scrutinizing proposals by management, you might have overboarded directors that have so many other commitments and that might impact their ability to focus on any particular company. Fair point. Excellent points all around. Um, thank you again, Andy, Jim, and Florian for joining us and for really a great conversation. That's all for this week. A big thank you from Joe, Phil, and me to Andy, Jim, and Florian, and to all of you for listening. You can always stay up to date with MSCI's latest market insights at MSCI.com. Next up on the program, it's our quarterly check-in, where we'll put markets in focus with Hatendra Varsani and Mark Carver. Until then, I'm your host, Adam Bass, and this is MSCI Perspectives. Stay safe, everyone.